0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by Editorial Director Marina Cashman for the first time. Hi, Marina. Hi, Isaac. And back again, Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. So, first up, we're going to be talking about Freeze, uh, one of the biggest fairs to hit New York, which just wrapped up last Sunday. Then, a little later, Marina will be leaving us, unfortunately, and we'll be joined, fortunately, by senior editor Tess Thackera to discuss the arts in Detroit, where both me and her just got back from. Um, Then we'll try a little special Jeopardy round, a kind of Art World Jeopardy edition, and then end with where in the art world we'll be drinking white wine this week. So, first up, Freeze's fifth edition just wound down amid a jittery art market and Alex, a confirmed Trump nomination, as anyone who read your sales report will know. I guess maybe the first question is, and this is a super obvious one, but... Why, why are we here talking about Freeze? Why does it kind of matter?
1: Well, why does Freeze matter? I, you know, I think like any art fair, um, and particularly Freeze is one of the biggest art fairs, it's taking a barometer of the art market, the current art market. You know, for dealers, it's a concentrated experience, a uh, concentrated way to meet a lot of new collectors or collectors who are based here, around here. You know, it becomes an important part of a gallery's business. And I think for the art world, just to sort of take the temperature of the current art market.
2: I think also importantly to note for for those who might not be as deeply entrenched in the art world, Freeze is a fair that started in London. They launched a second fair in London, Freeze Masters, and then moved to New York five years ago. So it's kind of an interesting case study as well of how can you take a model that works quite well in one continent How does it work in New York? Well, not really in New York on Randall's Island. It's always a point of contention as well. But, you know, I, I think it's been interesting to see how that developed over the past five years.
0: Is there a difference between how, you know, if you're not an art market person necessarily, I think everyone knows why art fairs are important to people in the art market. You buy and sell art there. But if you're not... Uh, sort of, if you're just, you know, a fan generally, what's the best way to take in Freeze?
1: Well, one of the things I think Freeze has done very well is programming for people who are not part of the art world or programming for a general public. I think another thing Freeze has done particularly well is chosen food vendors who are fantastic. <laughs> so the beauty of going to Randall's Island, as Alex said, it can be it can be a trek, but on a nice day, it's pretty awesome to take the boat over to, to Randall's Island and uh take a walk through. I mean, for anyone who's not part of the art world, it could be pretty leisurely. You can stop at one of the cafes, you can go outside and see the various projects in and outside of the tent, um, really sort of Explore the area. See, you know, you're on the East River. You're looking at Manhattan. It's a pretty nice. It's a nice experience for someone who's, you know, not part of the art world.
0: Even though the weather this year was
1: the weather this year was, a, a, was a challenge. Um, Sunday, w- Sunday was good.
0: But you didn't have to
2: put on sunglasses in the tent this That's
1: year. That's true. You to we put talked on sunglasses about that. In the you past? do. It is can be qu- very bright. Wow. I mean, there's a beauty to that. But there have been many years where I had to put on a pair of sunglasses. I mean, inside it, the tent. On
2: the pro side of that, it is about the only art fair that you can go to that has a good amount of natural light yes um, Mm -hmm. which makes a nice viewing experience
0: so I guess what were the highlights for you I mean I know that David Horowitz uh, hired a professional pickpocket I don't even know how you do that like where do you get one
2: he said he tried out about three or five of them and then audition them Is and picked like- out and this, this
0: woman was, was really the winner.
2: How
1: did he audition them? I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure. I, I, That's I, my I Maybe in Times Square. Uh,
2: uh, like bring
0: me back $200 by the end of today. Yeah. And like, yeah, um, <laughs> first one back then, with yeah. the most money wins. Um, and we don't condone breaking the law. But this artist hired a professional pickpocket to drop uh, statues into people's bags. Did either of you get, get one? No.
1: Unfortunately, no, no, um, I wasn't pickpocketed.
0: No. Okay, or, so or apart from reverse that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice pickpocket. Yeah. Um, apart from that, what were what were the highlights for you guys?
1: Uh, for me personally, I, I thought the spotlight section was was well done. It's the second year they've put together this section. It's uh, primarily one person shows of underrepresented or maybe lesser known aspects of of 20th century artists' careers. Um, it's curated by Clara M. Kim. Um, for me, it just contextualizes contemporary work and sort of a historical focus. And it, within that section, some of the things that really stood out to me were the H.C. Westerman at Venus, mm-hmm. uh, Venus over Manhattan or Venus over Los Angeles. They have two locations now. Also, the Alan Shields at Van Dorn Waxter. another, I would call him an artist artist, it had... Been very much part of the New York scene in the 1970s, sort of fallen out during the, the rise of neo-expressionism, and then it really came back with a show at Parrish last year, at par- the Parrish Art Museum and out in Eastern Long Island. And I, I mean, an artist I would never expect to see at an art fair, mm-hmm. and actually they presented him very well and uh, made him feel very relevant and the work feel really refreshing. Why and would you
0: never expect to see them at an art fair?
1: His work can be. Challenging, um, I would say not challenging, but his work his work is is sort of not as sellable. I'd say okay. without sort of discrediting any of the other artists who are typically seen at art fairs. Um, he makes really large scale sculptures, um, these tents. Um, there were sellable works there. Sort of small scale watercolors, uh, really beautiful, vibrant. Um, it's
2: always a good strategy: you bring something really bring ambitious something in the ambitious, of the booth, and, and, the, and then there's a nice
1: work totally. on paper that you can purchase. Yeah. I mean, and you know, then there was also John. Devola at gallery Lewistti there was Mary Kelly Pippi Holdsworth which ended up going to the Pompidou, right, right? Yeah. and so you know it, it's it was a it was a little bit more of a rigorous section um, then there were other major highlights the, the Kentridge at Marion Goodman was, was awesome it was like walking into one of his opera sets <laughs> um, and I could probably go on but Alex I'm sure you had some <laughs> some highlights as well
2: well I don't know I think pulling from from what you're asking before Isaac about like how do you approach an art fair as somebody outside Side of, kind of the art market, one of the things I thought was pretty fun um, was Sean Raspett's solo booth with Societe, uh, which is a gallery in Berlin, a kind of young gallery that's gotten a lot of attention recently for having a pretty ambitious and forward-thinking program. And he brought a full kind of fridge, I guess it lined the whole booth with fridges filled with soylent, uh, which for those who don't know is a meal- substitute it got a lot of kind of press both positive and negative a couple of years yeah. ago when it started coming out it's not people as, as the name would otherwise suggest um <laughs> but i think it's kind of a fun way for somebody who's you know maybe seen this in a i think i saw it for the first time in a documentary on vice or something like that and then bandied about for the past couple of years as, as a interesting future phenomenon did you drink some of the soil? i didn't uh, okay and i haven't had it yet i've heard there can be some Odd After Effects, oh. so uh, <laughs> and and it well, it's has not elaborated. I, yeah.
0: I don't want to get shut down by started. the FCC. So let's just yeah. keep, <laughs> let's keep rolling along here. So I guess Freeze, like you said, this is the New York offshoot we're talking about, and it's only been around for I guess not only it's been around for five years. How has it kind of changed? What are the shifts we've seen?
2: I mean, I think it it stays true to a certain rhythm that it has. That's certainly something that you always see. Is that you know due to its location, people really turn out on the first day. It has I think slightly increased in the past years, although this year has its own particularities in terms of sales, because of kind of instability in the political and economic environment and general security environment that we're seeing at the moment. people are less readily buying you know major works, or at least people who are maybe buyers and not true collector patrons who are always going to be buying things and doing it for the like, love of collecting, anybody who has a slight you know financialized version in their head of, of why they might buy something a hundred thousand two hundred thousand and above maybe are, are taking a beat before doing that but what was exciting is that young galleries are selling incredibly well and talking to a lot of friends that were showing and and seeing how how much art they had sold and especially by you know new artists and artists exhibiting kind of new tendencies that i think are pretty exciting and we think are pretty exciting at arts here because what's nice to see
1: yeah i mean i also think and Alex, I'd be interested in your opinion here too, but Freeze really came into New York with a London kind of mentality. And I think over the past five years of this edition in New York, they've sort of kind of refocused on a New York, uh, new what, York what audience. What do you mean by like,
0: the, what is the difference between like a London mentality and New well, York
1: Well, I, I feel like at Freeze London, it's very much about contemporary, new, uh, on the pulse. I think uh, progressively over the last five years, I feel like Freeze... New York has has spoken to the market here so whether that's U.S. artists is specifically New York artists as well as some more blue chip artists and his and historical artists I think that they're they're responding to the market here a little bit more and I f- have felt that the last couple of years I think Spotlight is a good example that it, it launched last year. I think Freeze London has a very different feel, but I, I do think they found their rhythm. As Alex said, I, I feel like the, it took them a few years, but they found their rhythm in New York and, you know, it can be difficult to do, but they've done it really elegantly and and, and with a clear vision.
2: Well, one of the things when I was talking to Victoria Siddle, the um, director of Freeze Fairs globally, ahead of the London edition last October, she mentioned that very much based on the success that they had seen with Freeze Masters, which was the fair that she started directing. They wanted to incorporate some older works into the New York fair as well. It happens during the auctions week, or at least right ahead of this year, the major New York auction weeks. So I think you have a lot of people in town that have some demand for those kind of works. I mean, we'll see how the auctions pan out. You know, this kind of London versus New York mentality thing is quite a contentious debate around Freeze. I do feel like it still has much more of kind of british polish Mm -hmm. and you know when you look at something like the armory show which is a little bit more rough around the edges and like much more just a sales mechanism and whatever i mean they're now reorienting to bring in some more curatorial efforts there but freeze is is a softer approach which i don't i don't know if it actually works better i think new yorkers kind of like that uh, that straight up to the point (laughs) like you know A little bit of dirt on the ground. Or freeze,
1: is my husband who is biased because he's British, but he would say it's more civilized.
0: Well, all right. Now for something completely different. We're going to talk a little bit about Detroit. Marina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you
1: for having me. I hope to be back again soon. You will
0: be, I'm sure. Okay. (laughs) So now we've just said goodbye to Marina. We say hello to senior editor Tess Thackera. Hey, Tess. Hey, Isaac. Welcome back. We missed you for the first segment. Oh, it's that's good to very have you nice.
3: Back. Thank you.
0: So we both just <laughs> got back from Detroit. I was there for a new museum initiative called Idea City. Tess, you were, I think, just you know gallivanting around. I was just being a tourist. Just being a tourist.
3: Okay. Checking out the art, but also the moto history a little bit. Oh, did you go to Motos the... You, mo, mo,
2: motor City? Motor <laughs> City. Moto. Are,
0: are you a driving uh, enthusiast? Did you
2: go to the Sports Motown Mobile Museum? History, I
3: think is what I was trying to say. Sorry, which museum?
0: Did you go to the Motown Museum?
3: I didn't go to the Motown Museum, but I did go to one of Henry Ford's earliest factories where the Model nice. T was designed and assembled, which was okay. really and, cool, and the assembly line was exactly, invented? Exactly, exactly.
2: Capitalism at work.
0: Yeah, it's the heartland of that sort of American <laughs> American dream, car, kid, house,
2: Um. While Detroit may have started that kind of American dream culture, now it has become the hallmark of urban decay. Isaac, you and I worked on this feature towards the end of last year, charting kind of art world cities across the globe. Detroit was featured in that as kind of a hallmark of new emerging capitals. But I'd be curious to know just like general background. What is Ideas City? Why were you there? What happened? Did you fix Detroit?
0: No, that wasn't really the goal. So basically, Idea City is this new museum initiative. It's existed for a few years. This year, the organizers kind of decided to take a very different tact, where in the past it had kind of been a glorified conference. They were sort of now thinking about ways in which to kind of create something maybe more meaningful and more genuine and more, not immersive, but collaborative, I think is the correct word. So it involved some 40 fellows, which were people, you know, artists, urban planners, designers, historians, all sorts of different people from Across the globe, the United States and Detroit, divided up evenly into thirds, and they slept in these pods in this vacant hospital complex called Herman Kiefer in the Virginia Park neighborhood. It was shuttered a few years ago, but it has like a very long, illustrious history in the city. Uh, first as a tuberculosis ward, then, you know, everyone remembers it as the place where they went to get their driver's license or their birth certificate or their death certificate or official documents, and then it was closed down. So basically, you know, the idea of fixing Detroit is kind of a trope um, among sort of outsider groups that kind of come in and be like, let's, you know, let's solve it. They just haven't thought of the right idea yet. And that's really was not the point of this. There was something sort of more, the word experiment was thrown around. I think it was kind of taken to mean rather than sort of dictate solutions, um, fellows would be able to sort of over the course of this five day program kind of just learn about detroit expansively learn about detroit's arts certainly but also as we've already kind of hit on the urban landscape is such a critical factor in understanding the city right now and yes the city of urban decay is the narrative is one narrative around it but i also saw some incredible vibrancy and i'm sure tess can also attest to kind of an enduring creativity that exists in the in the city
2: you flew in there though and i, took I the think train. some are you yeah you took the train that's right I think some of these initiatives can kind of get knocked for being parachuted in people to solve problems or or look at even problems that they don't personally experience it, was that your experience there or did they have a different approach
0: they had a very different approach i mean i think that there's still criticisms to be made and a lot of and there was a lot of self criticism during the whole thing but i think that that you know already right there is one of the first differences you have sort of a foundational desire to be self-critical and basically you know taking a third of the fellows and making sure that they were from detroit And then when the groups were kind of divided up so that people could think of ideas, making sure at least one Detroiter was in each group, kind of anchored everyone in a real way. You know, people would just call you out on saying sort of dumb stuff. There was like a real intensity and desire for dialogue. I also think the Detroiters, you know, not to speak for them, but they also saw parts of their city that maybe they'd never seen before. I mean, I think that there's this emphasis to sort of think of Detroiters as like, or like anyone from any place, if they've lived there as like an all-knowing holy grail of like knowledge about that place but of course you know like you asked me about places in new york i may not know about it you know just because i'm from here it's just not my experience so i think there was like a back and forth there which is so rare for an outside group or an outside organization something like the new museum to kind of even teach detroiters or like help the dialogue within detroit
2: and now i mean my dad lives in detroit and i was there last august when when he had moved there and you know one of the things i noticed immediately was you drive through the city and it actually has seemingly less density than some of the suburbs that surround it, what were, I mean, both of you and also Tess, maybe we can bring you in here as well, what were some of the kind of key things that you noticed being there? And then Isaac, you know, what kind of devices were devised throughout the Idea City Conference that might help to start to address or even just recognize those issues?
3: I will say that it's striking you know, how many, of course, how many blighted homes and buildings, old factories there are on view, which is, you know, in line with the more sort of stereotypical vision we have of Detroit as home of urban decay. However, I mean, my experience was of an art scene certainly there that is very vibrant and healthy and, you know, an extremely tight-knit community where people enjoy existing in that world because they're sort of away from the spotlight of larger art centers. What Um, does that help them achieve? I think it means that they can, well, A, A, they can live cheaply. (laughs) Um, It's important. I mean, I met a guy who runs a gallery called Young World. His name's Jason Murphy, who went to Columbia MFA. But he's from Detroit, and he moved back there, and he's running a little gallery showing the work of his friends other you know former classmates from columbia and i think galleries like that are really taking on a sort of itinerant model i mean they're certainly not collectors in detroit bolstering those types of galleries that are showing more cutting-edge work i think the the sort of brick and mortar space galleries are there because they want to show to their friends and they want to support the work they believe in, and then they travel to art fairs, and that's how they grow their collector base elsewhere. Um, so,
0: I one of the people. So, for this idea city, we were visited by like city planners, museum people, blah blah. And one of one of them was uh, someone from the Cranbrook Art Museum, and she sort of talked about she's not from Detroit, um, but she said that she really loved working in the city because there were real stakes, and of course that brings with it certain responsibility i think like for a lot of people a lot of this socially driven art really takes on a certain kind of elevated importance in a city like detroit and while that means there are real stakes it means if you don't involve the community if you don't think collaboratively there are real pitfalls as well so the potential for positivity is equally matched and the same is true of idea city as a a thing you know the potential for a positive kind of holistic conference is matched by the potential for everything to go really wrong and come out with just like another bad narrative of a, of a city that already has suffered that so many times.
2: And one of the things that struck me reading your piece, which came out this past Wednesday, covering the a full deep dive into the conference, which everybody should go and read, is the kind of scale of impact that you kind of identified some of these projects having. I mean, I think to me as an outsider, not having been there for the conference, to think about our urban regeneration effort, whether through culture or not, for a city like Detroit, you know, I was imagining projects on the scale of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. (laughs) You know, you talk about initiatives that could cost as little as $10,000. I'd be curious to see how like, how you think that these small scale initiatives can actually have a great impact?
0: Well, I think there needs to be and, 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 you know, I'm not an expert for uh, on this subject. So this is just sort of my my thoughts. But I think there obviously needs to be a No one's proposing like, okay, let's abolish city government and just do things like this. You know, there needs to be a spectrum of approaches. But I think that they're talking to me, you know, I was talking to one of the people who at the New Museum, and and they're now in conversation with the mayor's office to kind of get potentially more money, more partnerships. So there's always, there's a potential for more. One of the people during the final conference on the last day, there was sort of this big conference, the Astor Gates came, a a bunch of other people came, sort of talked about trickle up. You know, we tried trickle down economics, it didn't work, but like maybe these small scale things can kind of trickle upwards, just in terms of like changing people's perspectives, changing the narratives. And then there are sort of small things, not small, I don't wanna say small, there are cost effective things you can do, like build a monument. You know, in in Detroit, there was this massive rebellion in 1967. Some people call it a riot, just a few blocks from where we were staying. And there's just a small, nondescript park there right now. You know, there's nothing to sort of overtly memorialize this sort of massive event. And that's sort of the thing that you learn, or at least I learned quickly in Detroit. It's like things that appear quite empty are actually brimming with history and memories. So like all of these vacant buildings that... May appear very ripe for redevelopment are actually loaded spaces.
3: And there is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Isaac, you probably know more about this than I do, but I think there is a real movement to protect all these spaces within the city, a huge movement, right?
0: Yeah, I think that there definitely is like a really strong recognition that like some of the development that's going on in the city. Is predicated on changing the city in a way that people are really like Dream Hampton who is this sort of thinker sort of talked a little bit about how what they don't want is you know CVS's and Duane Reeds and like you know all these other things and obviously she's just one Detroiter someone might may well disagree they may well want just a normal neighborhood I think the key is to go out there and talk to people but she said you know we know what America looks like it looks like every other place in America so whether or not you like the Heidelberg project which I think Tess can sort of touch on what is the heidelberg project Tess.
3: so the heidelberg project was created by a man named tyree who essentially took over a blighted area of the city very high crime area and painted polka dots all over his own home or the home that his mother now lives in and it's become a very large scale junk art project that extends across probably about four blocks Mm -hmm. and so this has become a big tourist attraction and it's really fun to wander around there's some amazing junk sculpture that's sort of in the line of Noah Purifoy and and Joshua Tree um, Slab City outside of LA these places where people live off the grid and create this really wacky junk sculpture but not only does this draw tourists and attract attention to this neighborhood being very blighted. It also produces, I mean, it's a 501c3, so they receive donations and they run a bunch of education projects for people in the area. Um, It's been pretty contentious. I mean, people in the surrounding neighborhoods, Have reacted not always positively i know that there's been some arson the government has at least one time tried to bulldoze it
2: and i mean one of the things you mentioned about this i found was pretty interesting in your piece isaac is that it creates several million dollars every year Mm -hmm. of kind of concrete economic benefit to the city they did a Mm -hmm. certain survey to generate that as one leaving question around this conference what's the scalable model of it? I mean, is that is it, like you said, a methodology that they're leaving there for people? Is it this kind of activation and pulling back of a feeling of disenfranchisement among the community? Is it concrete projects? I mean, where do we go from here? Or is it just something where it's like, sparked a lot of interesting thoughts in the people who have come there that they can go back to their own communities and employ
0: i think the answer to all of that is yes (laughs) i mean if there's one thing idea city kind of taught me it's that you can never tell one story about anything so i think that there will be people who don't do anything concrete after this they'll just go back to you know the country that they came from and just sort of think about it maybe even forget it there was one proposal kind of sort of linked to heidelberg this special planning permit that was proposed by um, one of the groups which is meant to sort of cut down the red tape that artists face when sort of making their community arts projects legal and recognized by the city, that's something that's very tangible. That could totally happen if there's like a collective sort of groundswell of support, a little money, a campaign. You know, these are sort of things that seem very possible. And that's something that you would never have been able to propose without a Detroiter there who would actually run into these problems. Going there, an outsider would just not really be able to know about those sort of things. And just to like one one last point which i think is that sometimes i think people have a definition of art that almost precludes any utility right like some people actually define art as something that's useless in some way but i think that if we you know thinking about other pieces i've written like art outside the art world if we sort of expand our definition and allow a community food program like project eats in new york to be art then then we can sort of see that there's a potent relevancy here both in new york and in detroit So before our white wine art world segment, we're bringing you a lightning round of Jeopardy inspired by the new L.A. museum, The Broad, which recently got an appearance on the game show a few weeks ago. So are our contestants ready?
3: I'm really nervous. Can I just express that? Yes. And, <laughs> I, and I
0: please ask you to just quietly say buzz when you get the answer. Don't yell it or scare anyone. All right. We're good. I can tell by the look on Alex's face. He's ready. He's, he's a contender. Okay, so we're just gonna go in order. Two hundred. This artist, known- two
3: hundred. Two hundred points. <laughs> oh my God! Sorry, thought you were gonna ask me two hundred questions. <laughs> so- no.
0: Oh no, she's never just played. Just went Jeopardy into before. This panic is mode. Go I actually well.
3: haven't. I'm British. is that excuse me?
0: <laughs> so this artist, known primarily for his massive abstract paintings and collages, was recently selected to represent the United States. Plus, A- who is Mark Bradford? All right, Alex, What the get?
3: I need that one. <laughs> Okay, 400.
0: Yes, this is, listen, this is raw. This is (laughs) competition. 400. This artist statue showing a miniature-sized Adolf Hitler was the top lot at Christie's Bound to Fail auction.
2: Alex? Who is Maurizio Catalan?
0: Okay. (laughs) This is getting unfair. Okay, 600. Speaking of Catalan, his work at Freeze, which features a live donkey, made waves this year. When it was originally exhibited at this gallery, it caused it to be shut down. I
3: thought the answer was going to be the gold toilet, and I had... I would have oh sorry won. we should have
0: alex looks like he's on the brink of buzzing but he's not sure okay it's the no, daniel no. newberry gallery
3: where is that gallery
0: i think it's in, um, it was new, in york. new york New York. Okay. Um, but it's no no longer with us from many years ago yes that was the final exhibition that they had there 800 tess i think you can get this one <laughs> this american painter who grew up in watts los angeles before moving to his current home of chicago has a comic book series titled rhythm master
3: Carrie James Marshall. Okay,
0: you didn't buzz, but I'll allow it. Because or you're phrase behind. your question. Your answer in the form
2: of a question. Yeah. You're just breaking all the rules. It's all right. I'm. It's British <laughs> invasion of Jeopardy. We have an
0: unexper- inexperienced <laughs> guest here. Okay, a thousand. This is for all the marbles. The SF MoMA will open to the public on the 14th. It has 145,000 square feet of exhibition space, making it the largest modern and contemporary museum in the U.S. The second largest by those criteria is the MoMA. What is the third largest? Modern and Contemporary Museum, by Exhibition Space hmm. in the United States. And I'll give you a hint. It's in a part of the country that you would probably not think.
2: Can I take a guess? Yes. What is Crystal Bridges?
0: No, but that is a good uh, guess. So it's an obscure part um, of the country. You're, you're close. When you hear it, you'll be like, All right, that
3: was. I'm just gonna guess. Uh, what is Philadelphia Art Museum?
0: No, it is the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, and it has 53,000 square feet. All rodeo themed. Okay, well, thanks for our contestants, Tess. You lost quite badly. Um...
3: <laughs> I did learn the format by the last question. Though. Yeah, so the, next time yeah, next you're gonna time be I'll in be it to win it. Yeah.
0: Um, so, where in the art world are you guys gonna be drinking white wine this week, Tess?
3: Hopefully, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where Creative Time is putting on their project with Duke Riley, the artist Duke Riley, called Fly By Night, in which he has trained. A bunch of pigeons. A bunch? What's the collective term for I'm gonna
0: allow a bunch. Um a bunch is okay. Has
3: trained well hasn't a flock, yeah. A flock. He hasn't really trained them so much as attached lights to their feet. Um and he will release them and they'll fly around and it will create a beautiful, hopefully a beautiful light show. Do you have a ticket? I'm on the wait list, so Oh you're on the wait list.
2: We'll we'll get you. We'll put in a good word. Okay. Alex? I am going down to D.C. this weekend. Classic. Um, You're always
0: traveling. This is this this segment is, this is, is basically, basically like, where is a Alex family trip. traveling to? I'm going to
2: go see my cousins that I haven't seen in a long time. I want to go check out the Hirshhorn Museum. Uh, Mosa Chu took it over a couple years ago now, and there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, she's brought in a lot of new donors and up the program, bringing in some new curatorial efforts as well. So I'm excited to see what they've been up to and, and see the... See what's...
3: Mark Bradford is doing something there too, isn't he? Isn't he creating a wool-sized mural?
2: He hasn't done it yet, but that'll be coming up in November, I believe.
0: I can always trust you to know what's what's going on, what's coming up. So the, the thing that I'm going to be seeing this week is uh, Cameron Rowland at Artist Space, which I have to like really shamefully admit, I've been scolded for this, I've never been there. So it's like three blocks away from here, so I'm going to actually just wander over for lunch one day this week. And Cameron Rowland is sort of this very political, very conceptual artist, i described describe the show, but I'm I actually, am like, it seems very hard to describe. And Tess will back me up on that.
2: Do you think it'll, yes. you'll make it longer than the dance performance you went to?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I walked out of a conceptual dance performance this weekend. I mean, I walked in and I was like, how long is this show gonna be? And he was like, four hours. And I was like, <laughs> I am not, are you serving dinner? Like, I don't, what am I supposed to? <laughs> it was six o'clock on a Friday, I was starving. But I will make, I, I promise I'll make it longer than that. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Alex and Tess, for joining us. And thanks to Marina as well. She's she, she's not here, but we're thanking her in spirit. Just to let you guys know, if you haven't already, you can find the Artsy Podcast on iTunes. Please download and rate it. And subscribe. And subscribe, of course. Uh, you can also find it on your favorite podcasting app, whatever that might be. Just want to also thank our producer, Joe Sykes. We got additional production help from Abigail Kane. And our intro music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time.